This morning, what I'd like to do is, is before we just dive into this text, I, I want us to step back and think about something that, that Paul says and to make sure that, that we all have an understanding of, of what this phrase, what, what this means. And so what, what the, the thing that he says in verse 20 is he says that the power of the kingdom of God. And so what's interesting about the Apostle Paul is in his 13 letters in the New Testament, he will mention the kingdom of God 11 times. And he does so four times in this letter to the church at Corinth. And so I think it's helpful for us this morning is to maybe to take a step back and really kind of get this 30,000-foot view of what's going on in this text and really what's going on in reality every day. And to really ask the question, what is the nature of the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? Because Paul's going to deal with this in a really short manner. It'd be real simple for us just to read this and go, okay, all right. But not to have the understanding and the perspective of what he has as he is saying this. So that's, I think it's important. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, uh, Jesus said this in, in Matthew 24, Verse uh, 14, it'll be up on the screen for you, but here's what, what Jesus said. Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom, okay, the kingdom of God, shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony, my Bible fell apart, all right, to all the nations, and then the end will come. And so this gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, is the good news that the time is fulfilled. The, the kingdom of God is now at hand, and, and what Jesus is saying, go share that good news to the world. Go share it to the nations. And, and so we read throughout the Word of God uh, about the kingdom of God, and, and so what is it? What, what is this good news that Jesus is coming and sharing and saying, hey, the kingdom of God is fulfilled. It is at hand. What is this? And, and so take a trip back with me to the Old Testament, Psalm 103, verse 19. It says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty, his uh, rules over all, his rule and his reign, his control is over everything. That's, that's God. And so he's in heaven ruling and reigning um, as the psalmist is declaring that in, in his lifetime. That's how he sees God and he sees the kingdom of God. Psalm 145 verse 13 says, Your kingdom, God, is everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. And so in the Old Testament, uh, the, the, the hope was... Uh, something they looked forward to, to this coming kingdom, but, but their understanding of the kingdom of God then was that God reigned in all sovereignty as the king in heaven, and he controls the affairs of, of all sinful people and, and everything that goes on in every nook and cranny. He is over that, and so they see that, and their, their hope and desire is that this kingdom would come one day, that it, that it would come in one day in, in, in all its fullness. But that's how they viewed it back then. 
And that's how it was. In fact, in Zechariah verse 14:9, it says, The Lord will be king over all the earth, and in that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. And so there's this expectation about the kingdom of God that the rule and the reign of God would, would come to earth. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, listen to how the prophet talked about this. He said, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. And so here's this understanding that God rules and reigns in heaven over all the affairs of, of, of mankind. But then there's this understanding that God is going to come and make a highway for him, prepare for him to come. And so this is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, centuries before Christ would come, and then we read in the New Testament this one, John the Baptist, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, he says these words, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Whoa, what? What? God is about to exert his rule, his, his, his reign in a, in a new way, and here's John the Baptist announcing that it is at hand. And so Jesus says this, because he's saying now the time has come. The kingdom of God has now come to earth. And this is how Jesus would describe the kingdom of God, I believe, here on earth. He says in Luke 4, 18 through 19, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And so the kingdom of God has come to earth in Jesus Christ. Isn't it amazing? Jesus comes to save his people from sin, to defeat their enemies, to establish peace and righteousness, things that were talked about in the Old Testament. But now it is being fulfilled. It is at hand. It's here on earth. But it's also still to come. It's present, but it's partly Future. So we have the fulfillment in Jesus, but not yet the full consummation of it. And so when we sit back and we look at the kingdom of God and we think about it, it, it really comes in, in two stages. Jesus first comes as a suffering servant to atone for sin. And then second, Jesus comes in the clouds, right, of heaven, because that's where he is now. He's at the right hand of God, reigning and ruling in heaven. And that one day we believe he's going to come through the clouds with all power and glory to bring his followers to be with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And that the kingdom of God would come in all its fullness and be consummated at that time. And so the early church preached about this. They preached about the kingdom of God after Jesus had died, risen, and ascended to heaven. Um, the early church preached. In fact, Philip uh, is written about uh, in Luke's uh, writing of Acts chapter 8, verse 12, it says, When they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus, they were baptized, men and women alike. And so the kingdom of God brings change. As men and women s submit to the rule and to the reign of God, 
as they hear the good news about the kingdom of God coming to earth in Jesus, and as they believe in him and and trust in him for the forgiveness of sins, what they're saying is, God, Jesus, you, you are my Lord, and their life is changed. And that's what the early church preached. And so you have, as we sit back this morning before we get to the text, these two ages, these two ages. We've seen the two stages of the the kingdom of God coming and still yet to come, but then you have these two ages. When you think about life, when you think about the reality of what we live in, you have the age of of sin, you have this age of of what sin has brought, which is is misery and and death, and and you have what uh, satanic power and, and evil in this age, and then you have the age to come. You have the age to come with righteousness, with, with wholeness, with freedom, with, with, with joy and everything that is good. And what has happened is these two ages have intersected. With the coming of Jesus Christ, they, they now overlap. The age to come has in since begun. But this fallen age, this fallen age will, will only last for a time. It will have its end when Jesus returns once and for all and creates new heavens and new earth for his people to live with him forever in the fully consummated kingdom of God. And this is how the writer of Hebrews talked about this, and this will enter us into today's text. He says in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 5, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, They have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. And so how Paul or how the writer of Hebrews uh, sees one who has experienced the good news of the kingdom, who has tasted of the word of God, they have tasted the gospel. Their lives have been changed by it. Their minds have been changed. Their life has been altered. They have repented and turned to Christ as Savior and Lord. He says here that they have tasted the powers of the age to come. They have tasted of the powers of the age to come. They have tasted of the powers of the kingdom of God. And so Paul is going to speak to that. And he's going to address that with the church at Corinth. And as he does, what comes forth, I think, for us is we, we see marks of the kingdom of God. Uh, we, we get an understanding is what is this power of the kingdom of God that we as a church are to taste and experience in all its reality today? What does that look like? And so what we get a taste of is, is really what, what does the kingdom of God look like for you and I, and how does Paul communicate that here? And as he does, he he speaks also of an enemy to the kingdom of God and what will stifle the power of it. And so as we look at this today, I want us to see three things, okay? First, the marks of the kingdom of God, love and truth. And we're going to see Paul uh, show that, demonstrate that. And then we're going to see the enemy of the kingdom of God, which is pride, which is pride. And then third, we'll look at the power of the kingdom of God exerted in the church today by the power of the Holy Spirit. So love and truth. Let's look at verse 14. We'll dive into it. If you got a copy of God's Word, follow along with us. That'd be awesome. And so with that perspective of what Paul has, this biblical pers- 
perspective of the kingdom of God, the times we live in, the ages that have overlapped, the understanding of that. Now Paul shares these eight verses, and look what he says in verse 14 through 15. I do not write these things to shame you or to humiliate you, but to admonish you, to correct you, to warn you, to exhort you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless or 10,000 tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father, Paul says, through the gospel. And so as we, we hear Paul in, in his, his, um, his heart for the Corinthian church here, it, this is a letter that was written out of love. That's his aim in this letter. It's not to humiliate them, but it's to encourage them. It's to correct them for their good. And Paul sees the Corinthians as his beloved children. Paul's like a parent to them, a, a, a spiritual father, because he brought the gospel to them. And so that's what Paul sees this as. And he loves them like a father does his children. And he tells them, hey, listen, you have all these tutors and, and guardians along the path of, of grace and he's bringing this up because he also knows that they're not good ones. <laughs> they're not good ones. Because some of the leaders in Corinth are, are remember, they're, they're leading them toward human wisdom. That they're leading them toward uh, going outside the word of God, as we saw last week in verse 6 of chapter 4. And, and so Paul you, says you have all those, but there's no comparison to a father. You may have a tutor, but hey. There's nothing like the love of a father. And so Paul is letting them understand, this is how I'm coming to you. This is how I'm writing to you. This is my heart. This is my desire for you. And so I, what I love about Paul is, you know, he doesn't send this text or he doesn't write this email or he doesn't write this letter and just lets them have it. It's like, dude, you punks. You're following this stupid wisdom of the world. How could you do that? You're, you know, just he didn't just let them just, I mean, he kind of said that last week with sarcasm, and, and, but he did it lovingly, right? But he doesn't just go to shut off the relationship. Because cause, cause when, what can happen sometimes is we can crush people and their spirit to the point that they just shut down, they close their ears, they stop hearing, and the relationship gets severed. And Paul, what a great model here of, of, of what parents are to be to kids and, and, and what we're to be as spiritual influences to others, loving, keeping the relationship, leaving room for, for God to, to bring brokenness when it's needed, but not to crush a spirit. And he doesn't want to crush the spirit of the people in Corinth. He wants to see them change. And so, as he said in Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love. And that's how Paul came. And those are marks of the kingdom of God. And so, love, just as it was with Paul here, with others, should be our aim. And it was for him in this letter. And I think we learn a th few things for Paul. How, how should we love unbelievers? But I want to add something to this. How shall we love unbelievers to Jesus? That's different. How shall we love unbelievers to Jesus? And how shall we love broken people to freedom in Jesus? Because that's what Paul's doing here. 
Paul's deal is just, I love you, man, and I'm going to be with you through this. No, Paul wants to love these broken people that have gotten off track in Corinth. He wants to love them back to freedom in Jesus. That which they had tasted and, and they had seen, he wants to love them back to that freedom. And so how do we love effectively? In fact, I, I think this, we can step back and say this even impacts some big things um, like institutional evils and stuff like that. How, how do we love effectively in a way broken people, unbelievers to, to Jesus, but also how do we love in such a way where we can break down institutional evils? even things like abortion and things in our days. How can we build relationships lovingly to impact even things like that? I think Paul helps us with that. I think this letter helps us with that. And that's how he approaches Corinth. That's how he approaches these people. And listen to what he says in verse 16. Therefore, okay, it's a key word, I exhort you to be imitators of me. Paul says, because I'm your spiritual father, imitate me. <laughs> right? He doesn't do this with the spirit of pride, doesn't do this with the spirit of arrogance. But the Corinthians were to learn from Paul like a father does a son or a, a, a child does to their father. Um, children are to observe their parents. A children are to observe their, their father's example. And that's what Paul has in mind here. And they're to imitate that. It's the same idea that Jesus had as, as, as their teacher to his disciples, okay? A student to his teacher. They're to imitate him. Paul's going to repeat this again in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. He says, be imitators of me, but listen to what he says, just as I also am of Christ. You see, that was Paul's heart. Paul's heart wasn't just be, a, be like me, all right? That's not what he was saying. Be like me as I am like Christ. In fact, in Philippians 3.17, Paul says, brethren, join in following my example. Observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. And so Paul says that, look at our example, look at my example as I live out Jesus. And that's what God wants us all to do, right? It is to, to the, follow the example of others who are pursuing after Christ and to learn from them as they're following Christ. And likewise, we're to be those that people can look at and say, hey, I want to follow their example as they're following Jesus. And so when you think about making disciples, right? And being disciples, that's what we're doing, right? That's what we're doing. That's what Paul so longed for them. He, he loved them, and he loves them with truth. And listen to what he says next, verse 17. For this reason, right? Why I want you to imitate me, or, or why I want you to uh, look at the example that I am of Christ and to live that out. For this reason, I'm sending to you Timothy. That's interesting, right? Paul's not saying, you know, for this reason, I'm coming, you know? He says, no, I'm sending Timothy. I, I love this text here. Who's Timothy? He says, he's my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Isn't that interesting? So what Paul is saying is, hey, I, I, I have this relationship with you, Corinth. I love you like a father does his children, and, and we have that relationship, and, and, and I want you to imitate me like like." I live for Christ, you imitate Christ, and let me send to you someone who does that. <laughs> wow, I love this. And he will do this. He will remind you of my ways, which are in Jesus, just as I teach everyone in every 
church. And so Timothy is going to come as Paul's representative, as an example of what Paul is trying to communicate and teach to them and show them. And he is going to live in front of them the gospel. He's going to live out literally the ways which are in Jesus in daily life through his teaching, his conduct, his actions in front of the Corinthians. And so what is, what is Paul doing here? He, he's calling the Corinthians back with this phrase here um, that Timothy is going to remind you of my ways which are in Christ. He's calling them back to the cross. He's calling them back to the gospel. Uh, Charles Spurgeon was called the Prince of Pre- Preachers back in the 1800s. And I mean, Spurgeon never preached a bad sermon. Um, there's pictures of, of, of ladders that would go up to the windows of, of the church, that, the Metropolitan Tabernacle that he would preach at, and people would climb on these ladders and, and, and stand at the top of them just to peek in the window to listen because there was no room in these churches back in the 1800s. And, but, but, but Spurgeon didn't preach like prosperity gospel or anything like that. I mean, he, he preached like truth, man, he, and he, he did so just an amazing way throughout the Word of God. But what he did every week when he preached is he preached the gospel, no matter what text he was preaching. And someone came up to him after a, a sermon and said, uh, Preacher, why do you always preach the gospel? And he says, Because you forget it every week. You forget it every week. And it's true. I mean, we have to be reminded. We have to be taken back to the ways of Christ, to the gospel, to the cross. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's taking them back to the cross, to the grace and the love of God in Jesus, because guess what? There are days we have to be reminded of that. And then what he wants them to do is to work outward from there as he takes them back to the cross, living in a manner worthy of the gospel. So Paul spoke the truth to them because it's what they needed. It was for their good, and this was most loving. This was most loving from Paul, and love was his aim. In fact, look at verse 21. He says this. um, He says, what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod? Okay, so you want me to be disciplinary, Father? Okay, not not necessarily a bad thing. Okay, it's good. It's, It's good. But he says, or with love and spirit of gentleness. Paul desired to deal with the Corinthians as a delightful father, not necessarily a disciplinary one, even though he, if it, if it was needed for their good, okay, but, but Paul wants them to know, hey, listen, I come to you as a father does a child in a spirit of gentleness, and this stood in great contrast to the spirit of arrogance that was in the church of Corinth. And so he comes in love. And that's a mark of the kingdom of God, love and truth. And that's how Paul came. But what he found in Corinth and what we've been reading about in the first four chapters is something completely different. And it's really the enemy of the power of the kingdom of God. It stifles it. And so look at verse 18. Now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. And so some in the church in Corinth were inflated. Remember, they're puffed up. Uh, they were unloving. All they loved, or all, the only person they loved was themselves. Um, 
They did not value Paul like they should because they'd become puffed up in their own estimation of themselves and their own ideas. And so they felt like, one, that Paul would not come to them, and if he did, um, they thought that they could overcome his influence. So they thought that their wisdom, this worldly wisdom, was superior to the gospel. So what we see here is, is, is in their arrogance, they stood against Paul and what he taught. They stood against his example, and they stood against, ultimately, Christ and the gospel. And so what kills the power of the kingdom of God in the life of a believer is pride, is arrogance, is a puffed-up estimation of our own self. And so Paul says, but I will come to you soon. If the Lord wills, in verse 19, and I shall find out, not the words of those who are arrogant, but their powers. See, Paul's not coming to hear a slick presentation. He's not coming to hear persuasive words. But Paul wants to come and hear, is their power? Is their power? You see, the Corinthians, instead of godly wisdom, spewed out worldly wisdom. They went outside the Word of God, and they viewed it as a superior wisdom to the Word of God. So when Paul comes, he will come looking for power in their words. He'll be looking to see what is behind their words, what's behind their teaching. Is it empty or not? And Paul is applying here, it is very much so empty words. Go, if you would, look over a page to your left. In chapter 2, I want to remind you what Paul said. Paul said this in verse 1 through 5. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority, excuse me, superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That's how Paul came. That's why he came. And he didn't come for self-advancement, for you know, applause. It wasn't about him. But instead, look at verse 5, so that your faith your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Paul came and he preached Christ and he preached him crucified. And he knew that that's what changed people's lives. And he knew as he preached that and he teached that, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that, that, that God would begin to work in the lives of people as they submitted to the cross of Christ, to the gospel, to the word of God, that lives would be changed as people trusted in Christ and rested on the wisdom of God instead of human wisdom. So what you have now, though, is the Corinthians, because of arrogance, because of pride, because they have, instead of directing people to the wisdom of God, they've directed people to human wisdom, 
outside of the Word of God. They have stifled the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And what does pride do? It leads to destruction. The message version of Proverbs 16, 18, I think says it pretty clear. First pride, then the crash. The bigger the ego, the harder the fall. Pretty clear, right? Basically what Paul is saying, all right, you think you knew better? If you really think you know better, okay, what Proverbs is saying too, go for it. You will crash. The bigger your head gets, When you fall, the more the consequences, the harder it's going to take, or harder it's, it's going to hurt, more it's going to hurt, more pain. I mean, you name it, all these things you're going to deal with as your pride and your arrogance grows. That's what pride does. It stifles the power of the kingdom of God. And so look at verse 20, just this one verse. Okay? Listen to what Paul says about the power of the kingdom of God. It says this, for the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What Paul is saying here, the kingdom of God is not about eloquent speaking. It's not about these, um, um, what did he say, uh, the superiority of speech that, that you guys came with, Corinth. It's not this human wisdom. It's not going outside of the word of God and thinking you have this new truth that you want to share with everybody. It, no. That's not what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God, he says right here, consists of power. Power. Not mere words. So it makes me question this. Just I had a question mark all week. Okay, so what is the power that the kingdom of God exerts now in the church? What is that? What is that? And so can, can I just rattle off some things here, if I could, just from the Word of God? Um, and, and I think first through Paul, he answers that question. Go back to, to chapter 2, the verse we just read just a minute ago, 4 and 5. Look at that. Some of you might have already saw it. You might have been like, oh, that's the power of the, God, of the kingdom of God. Look what he says in verse 4 and 5. My message, Paul says, my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, so not just mere words, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So, so the power of the kingdom of God. So as, as the message of the gospel it is preached and taught and shared, right? What, what Paul is saying here is the Holy Spirit works through those words, through the act of what Jesus Christ has done. And he changes people's life. That's the power of God. But for what purpose? Look what he says. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So here's what the power of the kingdom of God does for us in here. It causes us to rest. Or, or excuse me, take a step back. It causes us to have our faith rest on the wisdom of God. That's what the power of God is doing. Now, sometimes when we hear things like the power of God or the power of the kingdom of God, we're thinking of show me signs, show me wonders, right? I'm not, not, I'm not saying those things don't happen. 
But that's, that's maybe what we're, where we're going. We're thinking, okay, man, I want to see this, this dead guy over here raised alive, right? But Paul says right here, the power of God, the power of the kingdom of God is so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men. So think about it. This is everyday stuff. This is real life stuff. What Paul is saying is the power of God is, is to help you when you wake up Monday morning that your faith would rest on the wisdom of God and not what the world says. What the world tries to feed you this day, whether it's in the, the halls of your school or the halls of your workplace or, or, or the TV or social media, it's not to rest on that stuff, but that your faith would rest on the wisdom of God. Paul says that's what the power of the kingdom of God does. That's real life stuff. That's everyday stuff. And then thirdly, Romans 15, 19, actually Romans 15, 18, 19, says, for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ, I'm going to read it myself. Where is it? I, I, look at the screen, jacks me up. Okay, yeah. For I will not presume to speak of anything except that what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting, in, so listen to this, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, Gentiles are all Greeks, anyone who's not a Jew, by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit. So I'm going to stop there. So, so go back to what he says here. I'll not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. So he's talking about Christ and the work that he has done in Paul's life. So he's talking about the power of Jesus resulting in the obedience. So what has happened as a result of the preaching and the declaring of Christ in the gospel, it has resulted in the fruit of the obedience of others, and it has been seen in their word and also in their actions, that their lives have been changed in the power of signs and wonders and in the power of the Spirit. I think what Paul is saying here is, you know what a sign and wonder is? You know what a sign and wonder is? It's when people come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they go from rebelling against Christ to now obeying Jesus and trusting him and following him. Paul says, that's a sign and wonder. That's the power of the kingdom of God, is when now people start obeying Christ instead of disobeying Christ. That's the power of the kingdom of God, and that's what Paul wants to continually do in the life of the believer is that we would obey Christ, that we would obey Christ. That's the power of the God, God and the kingdom of God. And the third thing, I love this one, Colossians 1. Oh, this is good. Colossians 1, verse 11. Paul says this, strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, the might of Jesus Christ, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously. <laughs> Love Paul. Add that joyously, right? We're going to do this with joy, right? This isn't just trying to muster it up and, you know, self-will it. No, we joyfully do this, okay? It's his idea. So, so look at the text. We're strengthened with all power, right? The, the omnipotence of, of Christ. All the power that he has is available to us. You get that? That'll preach. All right. He prays, Paul does, that we would joyfully endure that steadfastness. 
whatever circumstances come our way, right? But too often, too often, when things get tough, when the fire comes, I, th- I think we, f- we forget we are to endure, right? And it's interesting here. He says right here, for the attaining of all steadfastness, endurance, and patience. Have you ever thought about that? Endurance and patience, are they ever separated? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think they go together, and I think Paul had something here. Because a lot of times when when things get rough and when things get tough, what do we want to do? We want to flee, escape, take flight, right? People do that in marriages when things get tough and hard. I'm not going to deal with this. I'm just bailing. Things get tough in family relationships instead of working through and talking through things. I'm not going to answer the phone. I'm not going to go over there anymore. I'm not going to Christmas. I'm not going to Thanksgiving. What, 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 that's what we do instead of enduring patiently. Me and this buddy of mine, we have this, this issue. But instead of dealing with it, asking for forgiveness or being willing to forgive, I'm just forget him. I don't need him. I don't need them. We do that. That's why churches split. That's why churches go through problems. That's why megachurches are so big today is because a lot of times people are not willing to deal with some of the issue in, in small communities because where community happens. So what happens a lot of times is, is people will bail, and I'll go to a bigger place, and I'll just hide so I don't have to deal with it. Well, what happens is you never get to experience the power of the kingdom of God and endure patiently through circumstances. It's reality. We all do it. I struggle with it. I'd rather not deal with things during the day, right? I I would rather not deal with tough stuff. But what happens is we miss out on the power of God and God doing great things when we are not willing to endure patiently. Paul says, even to do it joyfully. How can he say we can do this joyfully? Because he knows in the end what God is going to do in your life and maybe in other people's life as a result. And so let me, let me give you two quotes from some guys that I think kind of hit this on the head. One guy is Henry Nowen, and listen to what he says. He says about this text, Patience means the willingness to stay where we are and live the situation out to the full in belief that something hidden there will manifest itself to us. Impatient people are always expecting the real thing to happen somewhere else. The grass is greener on the other side. And therefore, they want to go elsewhere. Patient people dare to stay where they are. St. Augustine, a little bit older than Henry Nouwen, says that the one who shows patience prefers to endure evil so as not to commit it, rather than to commit evil so as not to endure it. It's up on the screen. That one's a little harder. 
that the one who shows patience prefers to endure evil so as not to commit it, rather than to commit evil so as not to endure it. And so what does this mean? God gives us strength, gives us power to endure the tests, the trials, the hard things in life, the hard relationships in life, that the problems that we all face every day, the small things, the big things, the little things, when, when things come up against us and we don't know what to do, the tendency a lot of times is not to deal with it, is to run, is to flee, to avoid, to say, forget you, I'm out. Paul says, no, the power of the kingdom of God endures patiently, joyously. That's the power of the kingdom of God. Strength and faith. Life changed from rebellion to obedience. And the power to endure, to have patience, and to be joyful about it, knowing what it's going to produce. That's what Paul says the power of the kingdom of God is. And that's what his heart was for them. That's what his heart was for us. As we come to our time of communion today, I want us to remember when we think about Jesus and the arrival of the kingdom of God in him, what has that done? And so when we think about communion today, I, I want these things to just kind of be fresh in your head as you think about the power of the kingdom of God and, and what Jesus and his coming has brought to us. And so as John comes and as we worship and as we celebrate communion together, the rival of the kingdom of God in Jesus has overcome physical misery and brought healing to lives. It has overcome death and brought resurrection. It has overcome demonic oppression and brings deliverance. It overcomes rebellion and brings conversion, change lives. It overcomes condemnation and brings forgiveness. It overcomes wrongdoing and it brings righteousness, right living. It overcomes sadness and it brings joy. It's my favorite. It overcomes aimless living and brings purposeful ministry. That's what Jesus came to do. And so today, if you're here, if you've never experienced the power of the kingdom of God in your own life, if you've never experienced the power of Christ and how he can change your life and take you from, from death to life, to, to take you from wrongdoing to righteousness, to, to take you from condemnation to forgiveness, I, I want you to know that, that Jesus loves you just like Paul loved the Corinthians. He loves you, and he died for you, and he gave his life for you so that you could have a relationship with him. And there is no other way. He is the only one, and he willingly gave his life for you. Would you trust him today? Would you believe in him? And the Bible says when we trust in him and what Christ did for us, and we believe that God raised him up from the dead. The Bible says we will be saved. We'll experience eternal life. And we'll have it forever. There is no better treasure in this world than Jesus.
I pray today that you know him personally. If not, trust in him today. Believe in him today. Let me pray.